0: Good evening, everyone, uh, Vice-Chancellor, ladies and gentlemen, um, welcome. As chair of the uh, Cyril Foster Committee, I'm very pleased to welcome you to the 2013 uh, Cyril Foster Lecture. And before inviting the Vice-Chancellor to introduce our speaker, I just wanted to say a few introductory words about the Cyril Foster Lecture Series. So the Cyril Foster Lecture is the university's prin- principal annual guest lecture in the field of international relations. It was established in 1958, when Oxford University accepted a bequest from the estate of a Mr. Cyril A. Foster. His wishes in respect to the bequest were quite specific, yet quite open also to a broad range of interpretations. He requested that the university, and I quote, arrange for a prominent and sincere speaker to deliver once every year a lecture to be known as the Cyril Foster Lecture and that the lecture should deal with the elimination of war and better understanding of the nations of the world. Over the years, the lecture has attracted a long and distinguished group of speakers, including senior academics and policy makers from around the world, all of whom have addressed these two core concerns from a variety of different perspectives including combating poverty, promoting economic development, preventing war, building peace and security and strengthening international organisation. And as you will soon find out, our speaker tonight falls firmly into this plural tradition and I'm very pleased that our Vice-Chancellor, Professor Andrew Hamilton, is here to introduce him to you all. Vice-Chancellor.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, it's an enormous pleasure for me to join with you this evening to listen to our distinguished speaker and to welcome all of you to the Cyril Foster Lecture for 2013, a lecture, as we've heard, that is hosted by the Department of Politics and International Relations. There's no, there is absolutely no doubt that over the past many years, the Cyril Foster Lecture has been distinguished by a great number of truly inspirational lecturers. And our lecturer this evening, I am sure will be no exception, uh, for he is is Professor Samuel Moyne, Sam, and Sam is currently the James Bryce Professor of European Legal History at Columbia University. And as you see, On the slide, his title will be The Political Origins of Global Justice. Professor Moyne received his B.A. from Washington University and then an M.A. and Ph.D. from Berkeley, followed by a J.D. in 2001 from Harvard University. He works primarily and has written widely on modern European intellectual history, especially on political and legal thought and human rights. He is the editor of the journal Humanity, and his most recent book to be published next year, I believe, is entitled Human Rights and the Uses of History. He is widely regarded as one of the foremost historians of his generation. In the UK, we say that one knows when one is getting old, when the policemen begin to look younger than oneself, and it's probably the same the world over. It is certainly true (laughs) in the Academy, and it's a great pleasure for us to welcome Professor Moyne this evening. We are enormously grateful him for making the journey over from New York for this evening's lecture. He's an inspired choice by the department. We've heard that the Cyril Foster lecture requires a prominent and sincere speaker. We certainly have a prominent speaker and I'm sure we will hear in his words that he is extremely sincere. It is a great pleasure for me to welcome Professor Moyne Sam to
2: the podium well I I can't tell you how grateful I am for this honor uh, indeed a thrill uh, and uh, I'm especially grateful to the vice-chancellor for that introduction I hope you'll agree to a, a, a little bargain at the start uh, you won 't dwell on the rather yawning gap in qualifications and renown between many of the prior Foster lectures and myself. It would only debilitate me and prejudice you uh, in exchange. I have little to offer uh, except a specimen of the sort of history of concepts in international affairs that i 've been doing, in particular some of my recent work on the origins of global justice in philosophy but I wanna begin with some background on current debates about the trajectory of human rights politics more broadly in order to frame my interest in global justice today. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948 with its provisions for economic and social rights was broadly ignored in its own time even as it's idolized in our own. Now in itself, this puzzle requires Explanation. I've been proposing that the Universal Declaration actually came late in its own era, essentially as a tardy charter for or template of the national welfarist project to which all North Atlantic states had already committed themselves after the rising expectations that they generated through their wartime promises. The text clearly tells us that it is a common standard of achievement for all peoples and nations. And the number who understood the Universal Declaration as a basis for a more transnational or international or global political arrangement or project, rather than one taking place within modular states, was tiny. Essentially, the new document registered a higher level of consensus than before or since, that 19th century classical liberal citizenship needed a serious revision. But human rights were an optional framework for that update, which predominantly drew on other idioms ranging from Christianity to communism. The creation of the British welfare state, for example, was hardly defended in terms of human rights. Thanks to the decolonization of the world, this national welfareism went global through its modular propagation. Now obviously it would be false to say that after World War II there was no internationalism of which in fact there were many kinds like further attempts to regulate warfare uh, or to avoid a macroeconomic catastrophe. The point is that we can't find for a very long time a prominent internationalism that like our own involved the foundation of or significant appeal to individual human rights. All this makes the centrality of human rights to our imagination surprising rather than straightforward. And it seems clear that the meteoric rise of the prominence of the Universal Declaration since around 1970 has gone along with the transformation of some of our most cherished projects. Now the document has become not a rather belated and dispensable and ignored charter for welfare states at home. It was in its own time, but the basis of a new movement and a premonitory dream of a new sort of international or post-national regime, especially one meant to attend to foreign atrocity and misrule. Most interestingly, in the work of the leading NGOs in the field from their rise in the 1960s and 70s until recently, the economic and social rights of the UN declaration were simply left aside as international human rights assumed prominence. Now, uh, on the basis of this little story, which is far from uncontroversial, a new debate's arisen. And it's this, what to make of the coincidence of this scalar leap of rights beyond the national welfarist project we sometimes celebrate with the crisis of national welfareist ideology we sometimes deplore. There are broadly two positions uh, in response to this juxtaposition. The first is apologetic. Uh, the coincidence is accidental. Two phenomena can be historically concurrent without any more connection. The other, typically Marxist, says that human rights are some of the sugar that has helped make the medicine of so-called neoliberalism go down and are causally implicated in its victories. Now, I don't think either of those two stances make sense. Instead, my view is is roughly as follows. Historical companionship is bad enough. No doubt we should credit international human rights with lots of normative value and practical uses, especially when it comes to stigmatizing evil states, from totalitarians in the Soviet Union in the old days to petty despots in Syria today. But human rights have been a rather serious failure in allowing the enactment of any opposition to the economic developments they've been forced to accompany across their own lifespan since the 1970s. Human rights seem like powerless bystanders to transformations against which they have have allowed no resistance. Even as they've become something like our sole vocabulary for making ethically inflected political claims about the global order. In particular, the practical uses of human rights, whether as a general framework or a set of specific movements, when it comes to the economic and social entitlements the Universal Declaration proclaims seems disappointing, if not close to nugatory. And they're entirely unrelated to any broader egalitarian agenda that national welfareism actually uh, took rather far, certainly relative to the 19th century and to our own time of galloping hierarchy between the wealthy and the rest, both within our states and among the, the global population. So it's, it's with this general puzzle in mind that I'm turning to my tiny and marginal and picayune domain domain, in order to explore what are fateful and world historical developments and i'm referring of course to philosophy which saw the rise of so-called global justice within anglo-american thought as one version of the human rights revolution of our time now this justification Uh, This focus has a justification, even if you don't happen to be interested in the activities of our thinkers. And the justification seems to be that the theory of global justice presents a strong counterexample to the trends I've just outlined. So-called cosmopolitans, since the invention of liberal global justice in the 1970s did make the scalar move of the human rights revolution to the globe beyond the welfare state, but they've done so precisely by globalizing economic and social rights, and even an egalitarian demand uh, once associated with national welfareism, claiming that our humanity is strong authority for claims to social justice beyond borders. So these thinkers hardly seem guilty of exchanging as it occasionally seems the rest of us have done a strong and expensive though restricted solidarity with our fellow citizens for a weak and cheap though universal solidarity of humans. All the same, I do wanna tell a story about the origins of global justice in which it has some disquieting links to transformations and solidarity of our time. Now as many of you know, the field of global justice arose thanks to, sometimes against, the unsettling cosmopolitan claim that whatever we owe our fellow citizens, we first of all owe our fellow humans, including when it comes to distributive justice. Cosmopolitans, that is, follow John Rawls's difference principle, so called, from a theory of justice permitting inequality only when it serves the least advantage. But they propose to elevate the social contract Rawls envisioned and the warrant for redistribution, as thought suggested, to the whole world. Rawls's students breached, as one of them put it, not without a little self-congratulation, the frontiers of justice. Now, the truth is murkier, I think. The globalization of Rawls's approach to justice emerged in reaction, I want to argue, to a prior proposal about world economic relations that arose late in and as the acme of Decolonization. Almost forgotten now, it was known as the New International Economic Order or the NIEO. Those who work in global justice like to say that their cosmopolitanism took long and proved hard to achieve against the millennial dominance of provincial moral conceptions. It was family, tribe, and especially nation uh, that crowded out the rare but precious insight into the common humanity of all members of our species, and the rights they might enjoy on the basis of their humanity alone. This unusual awareness, they continue accumulated slowly in a cosmopolitan tradition, originating with the ancient Stoics, revived by Immanuel Kant, and culminating finally in global justice. But this tradition, on inspection turns out to be flimsy historically. In the final analysis, the Stoics and Kant share little with each other and less with today's cosmopolitan theorists of global justice. And the quickly routinized presentation of the sources of the global justice idea, I think masks two very important (laughs) historical facts. One was that claims based on human universalism have teemed in the annals of history jostling one another and competing against one another to win followers. The other is that global justice emerged very recently in very specific political circumstances, and the older claim lineages turn out to be more a construction of the approach itself as a kind of usable past than sources of its formation. So I want to look at those sources. And I'm going to have a hero or protagonist his name is Charles Weitz. And I think by common consent, he invented the field of global justice, along with a few others. He staked out the most famous position in the field, so-called cosmopolitanism, and brought the whole domain of inquiry about. The normative revolution and liberal political thought of our times has been called the house that Jack built, after John Rawls, and in turn the, the story we know Tell Our Children, a recent essay refers to global justice as the house that Chuck built, uh, just as personalized in its initial architecture. Now, Bites's invention of the field, unlike Rawls's, was precocious in his own life. I'm going to be talking about some events in uh, Bites's 20s. They were also uh, distended in their chronological impact. The field clearly required the end of the Cold War to really boom as it has in the past 20 years yet origins matter. And in retrospect, Bites' contribution has proved enormous. According to his graduate school friend Samuel Scheffler, at the time, in the 70s in Princeton, Bites was sometimes met with what I fear, Scheffler speaking, was polite condescension. It struck most of us as peripheral even to the main issues raised by John Rawls's book but Schuffler continues bites in fact helped invent a new subject the subject of global justice which is today one of the most hotly debated areas within all political philosophy now how to tell bites story obviously there was disciplinary background especially if we think that what philosophers refer to today call global justice really didn't globalize justice so much as rawls's theory of it our field then obviously presupposes the origins of contemporary liberal political philosophy very generally, on which a number of scholars are hard at work analyzing Rawls's trajectory in the post-war period, but mainly the conditions starting with the crisis of domestic consent in my country around the Vietnam War in the later 60s that clearly seem to create the seabed for the Rawls' impact. <coughs> Now, whatever history will show on that front, the fact remains that Rawls's thought still sounded in what I've called the national welfarist key. Indeed, the book proved the elegy, not the enunciation of national welfarism as a a set of more, more broadly popular ideals. So we need something else, some more background to account for global justice. One bit of background, clearly, was that in the immediate aftermath of the publication of Rawls's theory of justice in 1971, more precisely in 1972 through 74, there was a terrible outbreak of world hunger. And it's true that this prompted some important interventions in anglophones thought. So you'll remember Peter Singer's famous paper on famine, which appeared in spring 1972. And he tells us in its first lines, it originates in reflections about the displacement and hunger uh, in what was becoming Bangladesh across 1972 through 4. But this proved to be just a prelude to the so-called world food food crisis of 72 through 4, which struck many places, including Bangladesh again, where a million died. Singer's paper clearly sparked a a rather significant discussion about the moral implications of the worst sort of destitution in the world, especially when it reached the depths of mass starvation. But I want to argue to you that actually the main catalyst for the field of global justice as we know it was not the world food crisis, but the NIEO. The focus that the world food crisis encouraged on absolute destitution, which might make justice a matter of charitable palliation, uh, seemed too narrow for several uh, liberal political theorists, including Henry Shue, Oxfordian, and Thomas Nagel. Uh, and they wanted to make the international system itself the topic of inquiry into what just social relations would look like at a global scale, as if it were possible to view the whole world as the sort of basic structure Rawls had seen as the object of theorizing uh, in the state. And so it was here, I want to argue, that the NIO was to matter so much. For just when the uh, world food crisis broke out, the global south also became the scene or source of a quite shocking revolt against the prevailing global hierarchy. What was the NIEO? It was a post-colonial challenge to our North Atlantic geopolitical and economic hegemony, established in the age of empire and ratified at the close of World War II. It emerged from a United Nations grouping of developmentalist states known as the UN Conference on Trade and Development, or UNCTAD, And it, in turn, gave rise to something called the Group of 77. These movements were given strength both by the sheer number of new states after decolonization and some economic disturbances of the early 1970s, which briefly, but I think powerfully, opened the prospect, uh, whether it was exciting or frightening depended on who you ask that some fundamental remaking of the world order was in the offing. Uh, It was really, though, the brief role of OPEC in assisting the NIEO proposals in the years of the so-called oil shock that uh, uh, damaged North Atlantic industrial economies so profoundly that probably counted most. It galvanized the movement, but it mainly, in the North Atlantic, it inspired reams of anxious commentary uh, and uh, uh, global justice really arises from these intellectual circumstances. In the end, the NIEO said it wanted some very simple things. Uh, faced with the inevitability of post-colonial development, uh, developmentalist states to launch quick growth on their own, uh, with the failure, that is, of what I called at the start the modular reproduction of national welfareism after formal post-colonial freedom was won, The NIEO hoped to empower national governments to assert sovereignty over their own natural resources, and as well to redo the international system of governance so as to restore equity to global wealth patterns after centuries of extractive colonialism. (laughs) Along the way, it uh, demanded massive aid increases, credit on favorable terms, and debt forgiveness. The crucial fact, as we'll see about the NIEO, is is that it was governmental. It was a program of so-called self-determination in the movement's buzzword. Now global economic forces, including multinational corporations, were supposed to serve the new nations rather than vice versa. And crucially, in the form of an alliance-based subaltern internationalism, the NIEO called for the reshaping of the existing hierarchy of governmental authority in the world which the alliance claimed at least worsened or stabilized an economic order that permanently disempowered the historically weak and immiserated the historically poor. Its plan for global justice thus didn't supersede nation states, both as fora and agents of solidarity, uh, but it did involve a subaltern internationalism and a call for global redistribution on what would even today be a massive scale. Things came to a head in early 1974, when the G77 propounded its famous declaration for the establishment of a new international economic order at a special session of the UN General Assembly. The intervening oil shock of late 1973 was just at this moment fresh in the mind. And the developed world suddenly, briefly, paid extraordinary attention to the third world's call for economic self-determination through nationalization uh, if necessary. The great fear was a general spike of commodity prices, potentially now under the control of the South. In a famous line from that moment, the French president, Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, mordantly described OPEC's quadrupling of oil prices as the revenge on Europe for the 19th century. For the first time since Vasco da Gama, another widely Circulating statement of the moment had it. Mastery over a fundamental decision in a crucial area of economic policy of the center countries escaped their grasp as certain peripheral countries wrested it from them. So people wondered what if everything else went the way of oil. As for the NIEO's even bolder call for, in its words, uh, correction of inequalities and the redress of existing injustices and making it possible to eliminate the widening gap between developed and the developing countries, politicians and academics responded with worry. And for the following two years, roughly 74 and five, there was a big debate, uh, at least until the alliance between the oil producing and the other G77 countries proved flimsy and the North Atlantic democracies weathered the storm. It seemed briefly plausible then at this moment that something big was about to happen. According to Time magazine from my country, a conflict between two worlds, one rich, one poor, is developing, and the battlefield is the globe itself. Well, I think it's surprising that this once shocking set of developments is broadly forgotten, and I haven't taken a poll or anything, but it seems to be unknown among many of my generational colleagues who have entered the field of global justice since the Cold War. After all, the field, as I want to show now, actually began as an attempt to justify the NIEO's real world claims. So what the Vietnam War was to liberal political philosophy generally, I want to suggest, these events in the early 70s were to global justice in particular the sensitizing event, or really rude awakening that precipitated a change in consciousness in the specific set of people who populate elite philosophy departments. And through this change, a new field emerged. I suppose in retrospect, it's unsurprising that the afflatus of discourse concerning world economic relations that I've just described precipitated a, a big new move within the otherwise independent rebirth of liberal contractarianism of Rawls's theory of justice. But it always takes an individual to notice, and Charles Bates played this role. Rawls's text, if you don't remember, famously takes up a very conventional picture of international affairs. Now it seems troubling to us, or to some, that Rawls assumed that as its parties lost so many of the particular features of their constitutions. Uh, from their bodily endowments to their cultural locations to their class positions, the national units of the historical world persisted in the famous original position uh, from which Rawls derived his principles of justice, including the difference principle. But if nothing else, I think it's actually an illuminating testament to the staying power of the post-World War II national framing of the welfarist aspiration. Rawls postponed international affairs to a second stage contract undertaken by state parties that result basically in conventional minimal principles of world order. Now Charles Bites's path to his move is very interesting. Actually, it's what most of my research has been about. Uh, I just don't have time to cover it. I'll just mention that it was crucial that he emerged out of the American New Left, which initially shaped him powerfully. Uh, And I think he was perhaps interested in, across the years we're talking about, in both reformulating it and de-radicalizing it. Uh, I'm going to be talking about his first professional exercise, which was an article called Justice and International Affairs, published in 1975, actually the result of a seminar paper from a couple of years before, just at the moment that I've been covering. Bites offered, as many of you will recall, serious criticism of Rawls's grounds for allowing the nation state to be treated as uh, freestanding. Rawls had defended this presumption on the rationale that each nation was self-sufficient enough to be treated separately analytically and have its own contract and borders politically. In response, Bites made two now well-worn but very important arguments. In the first place, uh, natural resources are unequally distributed across the surface of the earth. But this then forbade the simplification of treating global arrangements as a second stage problem. And on this front, Bytes clearly analogized the distribution of natural resources with the natural endowments that Rawls himself had insisted on treating as morally arbitrary for contractual purposes. Uh, so Bytes implied that the, the very argument for the redistribution of the fruit of our natural talents, uh, intelligence and so forth, that Rawls had famously justified at home against immediate criticism from Robert Nozick and such like, would just carry over to the consequences of uneven natural resources globally. But then second and more boldly, Bites claimed that it was just empirically false, that it was impossible sorry, that it was possible to disentangle states, especially for the purposes of a social contract that would govern distributive justice in an age, still our own, of multinational corporations, capital flows, and so-called interdependence. Bait's argument was essentially then that no one familiar with the empirical situation of the 1970s, or at least new perceptions of independence then, could ever conclude that entering a separate state-based venture in social justice was possible at all. If evidence, in his words, of global economic and political interdependence shows the existence of a global scheme of social cooperation, we shouldn't view national boundaries as having fundamental moral significance. But if so, then the analytical expedient of proceeding directly to state-based contracts failed and a gar- global bargain would take place, with Rawls's difference principle with which Bytes agreed suddenly applying to world affairs. Bytes concluded, the state-based image of the world has lost its normative relevance because of the rise of global economic interdependence. Principles of distributive justice must apply in the first instance to the globe as a whole, then, derivatively to nation states. Now, whatever one thinks of that argument, I want to register that it, we are in the presence, I think, of an essential rupture, if not in the history of thought, than of the history of liberal thought. A rights-based social contract, which had been more or less unanimously restricted from its early modern invention to its 1970s revival, to boundary territories and peoples now became imaginably global. Now, in his first exercise in this vein, and I told you it's from 1975, Bites began with an epigraph from the NIEO declaration. And I think that he thought he was doing its work, justifying normatively what the NIEO had proposed politically. Strikingly, Bytes directly indicted, in tune with the NIEO, the preeminent role of multinational corporations that, along with prevailing trade rules, created a dynamic in which, in Bytes' words, value created in one society, poor, is used to benefit members of other societies, usually rich. Even more revealingly, Bites was relying at this stage on dependency economics, which is the school of thought most closely related to UNCTAD, to conclude, again in his words, that poor countries' economic relations with the rich have actually worsened economic conditions among the poor. And it was in view of these unfortunate features of interdependence, Bites concluded, that Rawls' concern for the law of nations seems to miss the point of international justice altogether. Now, Bites never directly answered the question with which he opened his famous article, whether, in his words, efforts at large scale institutional reform, i.e., the kind for which the NIO was calling, were justified. But his conclusion sounded affirmative. In his words, the duties to secure just institutions where none exist endows certain political claims made in the non-ideal world with a moral seriousness. When the contract doctrine is interpreted globally, the claims of the less advantaged in today's non-ideal world, claims principally for food aid, development assistance, and world monetary and trade reform rest on principles of global justice. In other words, I think he's saying, I've grounded the NIEO normatively. And then Chuck changed his mind. Uh, Then he wrote uh, his dissertation, became his book, Political Theory and International Relations, an Mm -hmm. epic-making book. It's dated four years later. And its argument, while continuous in some respects, is altered in others, and much transpires, of course, across these years of the middle 1970s. So for one thing, the human rights revolution associated, though no one's ever claimed single-handedly caused by Jimmy Carter's election to my country's presidency, intervened. Uh, Where Rawls hadn't used the phrase human rights, indeed, I actually doubt he knew of the Universal Declaration at that stage, after 1977, uh, Anglo-American liberals immediately began to talk a lot about human rights uh, and thinking about the international ramifications of rights in ways Rawls had never done and generally wouldn't do, even though he lived much longer. More important, the high tide of the NIEO passed uh, that moment when bites had imagined a global social contract. And while he certainly didn't drop his original arguments, which I've summarized for you, he now presented them, I think, as an alternative to, rather than as a rationale for, the new international economic order's radical, because still excessively nationalist and statist claims. Now, Bites introduced a fascinating indictment of what he called the morality of states which was still central to the NIEO ideology, even when it pursued global reordering. In his original article, Bites had left a passage referring to the popular right of self-determination favorably, and he noted its violation by my country in, uh, in the case of Salvador Allende's Chilean experiment. Bites had also... <clears throat> Suggested that his globalist term provided reasons Rawls's non-interventionist approach couldn't, for the international to concern itself with denials of rights, still including the right to self-determination. Bites' mature text, however, took as its central purpose not simply the plausibility of global justice, but a version of it in which self-determination suddenly became an unworkable alternative. After all, as Bites wrote, it's the interests of persons that are fundamental, and national interests are relevant to the justification of international principles, only to the extent they're derived from the interests of persons. Now, not only did Bites reject the premise of the autonomy of states, just as he rejected it as as an empirical matter in the name of interdependence, he engaged in new ways with the principle of self-determination that, as I mentioned, had been the mantra or buzzword of the NIEO and its various documents. Beitz concluded that self-determination was vague in exactly what the rejection of colonialism entailed positively. It could survive philosophical scrutiny only, he writes, as a means for promoting conformity with principles that would be agreed to in a hypothetical social contract. In other words, it's just a a synonym for social justice, nothing more. And this meant that if the idea of self-determination cut against empires, as it had throughout post-war history, uh, and it also cut against South African apartheid, he mentioned, it was really for the more general reason that it cut against any claim of uh, non-intervention in unjust regimes, including, he now added, potentially in the new states themselves. In his words, while colonial government is usually illegitimate according to the principles I've outlined, there's no assurance that successor governments will be any more legitimate according to the same principles. Now the addition of these thoughts as a preliminary to the case that he maintained for his globally scaled principles of justice, including distributive justice, now differed starkly from the still statist and nationalist premises of the NIEO and i think what's going on is that there's a new newly widespread feeling in the west crystallizing at just this moment that self-determination had gone too far it's provided insufficient foundations for global order it, In other words, Bites now seems to be part of the turn against third-world nationalism and sovereignty. And I think this turn has defined our human rights revolution as deeply as any other factor. Uh, Another American writing at this moment, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., put matters very starkly in 1977, which is the year when human rights explode, uh, really, in North Atlantic discourse he writes that states may now meet all the criteria of self-determination but be blots on the planet. Human rights will be our way of reaching the deeper principle, which is individual self-determination. Bites also evolved in other ways, much more clearly, I think, contradicting the framework of his earliest uh, argument for global justice, especially with respect to his empirical assumptions. Uh, He retooled his discussion of economic interdependence uh, to drop the earlier diagnosis about the role of multinational corporations in promoting global misery. He dropped the worry that these entities make the rich nations richer uh, uh, and uh, (laughs) substituted a potentially rosier account Uh, because multinationals helped, uh, he said, uh, support growth and efficiency. And he also much more directly dropped his allegiance, apparently, to dependency economics of the early 1970s. Uh, He writes, the objectionable features of dependence that dependency economic complains about might be reproduced by an apparently autonomous state. So that's the same argument as before. Now Bites no longer had Chile or South Africa in in mind, but the developmentalist and despotic post-colonial state. Now to be clear, Bites was still inventing the field I'm discussing today. The global difference principle he sponsored is still radical in relation to current global inequality. But my point is that Bites framed his case incorporating criticisms of the post-colonial state that had been the agent of the new international economic order. And indeed, if we look, we find that Bites shared some premises with some of the most conservative North Atlantic critics of the NIEO. So consider for a moment Robert W. Tucker, who was the most notable of these critics, relentlessly polemicizing against the NIEO from the pages of the now neoconservative commentary magazine. The pressure of solidarity beyond borders, widely considered a necessary truth that needs no defense, Tucker stormed angrily in commentary, was something foreign to men's imagination prior to the post-war period. And he, Tucker gleefully added, even in Rawls's thought of five years before. If global justice beckoned, Tucker wondered, why had no one, and least of all John Rawls himself, thought so until five minutes ago. But if we look, we find Bites ultimately elevated into a matter of abstract principle some of the arguments that critics like Tucker made when they insisted that first and foremost, the NIO was a state-based alliance whose goal was to achieve geopolitical change in the realm of power rather than individual rights or justice in the realm of norms, alone or directly. However the state systems defined that's held responsible for the present global inequalities of wealth and power, Tucker noted, the NIEO doesn't challenge the state system per se. On the contrary, he writes, it's primarily through the institution of the state and, of course, cooperation among the new states that the historically oppressed and disadvantaged are supposed to mount a successful challenge to persisting unjust inequalities. Now, Tucker inferred from this claim, a correct claim, that calls for global welfare really concealed a dangerous power play, masquerading under the mask of high principle. Bytes, I think, took from it the need to replace the NIEO's call for interstate equity with one for interpersonal equity across the globe. Tucker wrote, a global redistribution of income and wealth will not be a new beginning in history if this redistribution is largely affected by and in the name of states. Bites agreed. Bites wrote in an especially lucid formulation, the effect of shifting from a status to a cosmopolitan point of view is to open up the state to external moral assessment and perhaps political interference and to understand persons rather than states as the ultimate subjects of international morality. Now, obviously, Bites wanted some form of global justice where Tucker wanted to nip it in the bud. But in Bites's thought, a normative specificity the NIO hadn't needed for its prior insistence that the world is unjustly organized ultimately came in the context of an attack on the nation-state, the alliance, had viewed as the adjunct and agent of, not an obstruction to, its proposed worldwide reordering. For Bytes, states were reduced to intermediaries with no moral standing in and of themselves between global principles and deserving individuals. As for the subaltern internationalism of the NIEO, it also had no role in Bites's theory of global justice, which went silent when it came to agency i.e., who would carry this out. Well, I think then in the end, by approximately 1980, global justice had been invented but moved rather definitively beyond the NIEO, which sparked it. It achieved the normative security of the moral stature of individuals in a global economic order. The NIEO, for its part, was destroyed. Uh, for a variety of reasons, but definitively by the global debt crisis of the early 80s. Global justice, whose origins I've narrated, transcended its formative crucible uh, and not only survived, but prospered enormously. For some observers, coming close to dominating Anglophone political philosophy, and from what I've heard, University of Oxford, uh, in a tremendous surge that shows no signs of abating, Now, I'm a historian, and I primarily wanted to tell you that story, but of course, on this occasion, I have to draw some morals, which you may not share, and I would hope the story supports a variety of morals. But I want to connect my morals to the framing at the beginning of my talk, the debate concerning whether international human rights should be regarded as accidentally concurrent with or unhappily complicitous in the erosion of national welfarist ideals, even as, of course, no global welfarism has followed in compensation. Now, I think I've provided lots of material for different sides in that debate. Somebody interested in pursuing a causal rather than more conjunctural relationship between human rights and so-called neoliberalism couldn't fail to note their shared individualism, and to a degree, anti-statism, which seems to unite them in their historical companionship across an otherwise significant divide. And it's also true that early neoliberals, indeed far more so than their doppelganger cosmopolitans, targeted the NIEO for their wrath and for su- destruction, and they succeeded <clears throat> But I'd like to argue a different case, which is that it was really the failure of global justice to theorize the conditions of its own historical origins and future enactment that marked it and marks it out most clearly for the fate to which it's been consigned so far uh, of mutely witnessing the reversals in our progress towards the very ideals it announces. Now consider to begin with, that global justice emerged as a Rawlsian reinterpretation of an already extant political project, not an exercise in detached, unworldly dreaming. Its initial prescriptive outcomes were simply the NIEO's program. Uh, And if they had not been supplied from the outside, uh, there would have been nothing to normatively justify in Rawlsian terms in the first place. So here it mattered quite a lot, I think, that Charles Bites was one of the few Rawlsians then or since, trained not solely as a philosopher, but also and actually mainly in political science and international relations and exquisitely aware at the time of contemporary possibilities, the NIEO first of all. Now there's a great deal, obviously, we could... Say about the relation between abstract normative theory and enacted political agendas. But it does seem incontestable if my story is anywhere close to right that without the NIEO global justice would not have come into being, at least not at that time, and possibly not in the version we've come to know. And then second, it seems as we do have to reckon with the fact that after its invention as a body of normative ideals, global justice has seen history make a mockery of its egalitarian demands. Now, of course, the same is true of the difference principle within the national welfare states, uh, with Bites like Rawls himself looking as if they planned on opening a new era when they actually let loose an owl of Minerva on partial achievements, their thought, has done apparently little or nothing to extend. Indeed, our theories of justice and global justice alike interpreted just in terms of the difference principle were announced precisely when that principle, though still utopian, were in some respects much closer to a reality, both within states like yours and mine, if you're British, and on the world stage than after or since that principle was announced. Now one response to the tragic fate of our philosophers is simply to conclude that it wasn't their fault if just at the moment they hit on the best available justificatory principles for distribution locally and globally, history went the other way, and rather dramatically so. Uh, but it does seem fair to worry if the relationship between normative claims and historical projects matters more than our philosophers have usually been willing to acknowledge or consider. Global justice has taken liberalism past a global turn, but in the face and then on the ruins of a scheme that was alternatively global and perhaps more lucid about the relationship between norms and power, as if the NIO had never been. The main conceptual alternative to cosmopolitan justice in the work of Oxford's David Miller, Michael Walter, and others has remained a defense of the moral relevance of states generally rather than poor states specifically, either on their own or in alliance with each other. Surveys of the field of global justice unfailingly report a dichotomy of statism and cosmopolitanism, as if cosmopolitanism hadn't been born, inspired, and then antagonized by a version of global justice, the NIEOs, that combined a commitment to state and national prerogatives with a demand for global reordering. So in this light, Bites' criticism of the NIEO seems especially troubling because it doesn't seem like better agents than the subaltern states themselves have since appeared on the historical stage. Rawls's dissident students aiming at global justice have been companions of market fundamentalism worldwide in developing a form of thought which goes back to Bites' invention of the field that one might fear neglects not only the formative conditions of their own projects, but especially those for its prospective institutionalization. Not only have our theories of global justice generally failed since the NIEO to assist any movement that has posed major resistance to the real victory of local and global economic inequality in our time. What might? colleague Mark Mazower, in a recent book has mordantly dubbed the real new international economic order. That's to say the global transformation in wealth patterns that's come true. Uh, more importantly, it's hard to imagine that the norms of global justice on paper or the sort of human rights advocacy we have known to date Uh, can provide the sort of agency for the structural reform that inequality makes so plainly necessary. Perhaps then, I conclude, we need another form of thought than contemporary normative philosophy provides, and another form of politics than human rights, for all of their inestimable contributions, have brought to the world in defining our time so deeply. Thank you very much.